Hello there, and welcome to episode two of Mansi Kurt 1071. My name is Nick Holmes, and this is a podcast series about the Battle of Mansi Kurt that took place in 1071 between the Byzantines and the Seljuk Turks. Why is it interesting? Well, it's always fascinated me because I think it was a game changer in history. It effectively destroyed Byzantium as a great power and caused both the Crusades and later the Ottoman Empire. Where did we get to in episode one? Well, a Byzantine general called Romanos Diogenes was made emperor in 1068 with the mission of stopping the Seljuk Turks from invading the eastern half of the empire. In this episode, we're going to look at the background to the Seljuk raids into Byzantium and why the Byzantine Empire was having some problems in the 11th century. Like last time, I'm going to read a chapter from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019. So here goes. The chapter is called The Crisis of Byzantium. Hope you enjoy it. The term Byzantine is misleading. The Byzantines called themselves Romans, and their empire was the eastern half of the Roman Empire that survived the fall of Rome. As Roman civilization in Western Europe was trampled underfoot by Germanic tribes in a period known as the Dark Ages, the eastern Mediterranean continued to prosper. Great ancient cities like Constantinople, Antioch and Alexandria thrived with hundreds of thousands of inhabitants. The Roman army survived in the East as a professional military organization unique in the world outside China. In the 6th century there was even a counterattack to recover the West. The Emperor Justinian reconquered Italy and Rome itself from the Goths. However, Byzantium was nearly destroyed by the birth of Islam and the huge Arab conquests in the 7th century. Just managing to survive this onslaught, its ethnicity would change from being a heterogeneous empire with Egyptians, Syrians and Africans among its citizens to becoming predominantly Greek. In the 10th century, it underwent a renaissance led by a new military aristocracy. Soldier emperors regained the military initiative from the Arabs, pushing them out of Cilicia and recovering the great city of Antioch on the Syrian frontier. It entered its most fascinating phase, a survivor from the ancient world that had reinvented itself as a medieval superpower. At the heart of Byzantium was the fabled city of Constantinople. The dream of every Viking warrior was to see this city, or Miklagard as they called it. It was just as awe-inspiring as ancient Rome. Its land walls were the most impressive feat of defensive construction in both the ancient and medieval worlds. Twelve metres high with 96 towers and nine gateways, they formed a double set of walls standing behind a wide moat. Within the city stood the towering church of Hagia Sophia, built by the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, and the largest building in Europe for nearly a thousand years. With a dome measuring over 100 feet wide, it was a triumph of engineering. There were dozens of other great stone churches, huge aqueducts, a vast hippodrome, a sprawling imperial palace, and hundreds of statues from antiquity adorning the forums and streets of the city. 
Its population in the 11th century numbered over a quarter of a million, ten times larger than that of any other city in Europe. As one crusader recounted, Oh, what a noble and beautiful city is Constantinople! How many monasteries and palaces it contains, constructed with wonderful skill! Byzantium's revival in the 10th century was based on a combination of economic and military success. The Byzantine economy was considerably more sophisticated and developed than that in the West. This is hardly surprising considering its economic legacy from the ancient world. For example, the Byzantine gold coin, the Nemisma, was the dollar of the Middle Ages and had no equivalent in Western Europe. Byzantine coinage made trade easier both within and outside the Byzantine Empire than in the more primitive Frankish, German and English economies. In addition, levels of literacy were far higher in Byzantium than in the West, helping to promote trade and manufacturing. Archaeological evidence uncovered over the last 40 years has shown that the number and size of Byzantine towns was growing fast in the 10th and 11th centuries, with rapidly increasing production of glass, pottery and textiles. But the most striking aspect of Byzantium's revival lay with its army. In the 10th century, this was probably the largest and best in the world outside China. The direct descendant of the Roman legions, the secret of its success lay with the fusion of provincial levels and centralised professional soldiers. The provincial armies mirrored the empire's division into provinces called themes, each with its own army under a local commander called a strategus or dux. The centralised professional troops were elite regiments collectively referred to as the tagmata, meaning regiment in Greek. The most prominent of the tagmata were the cavalry regiments called the scoli and the excubitors, which became the shock troops of the Byzantine army, including the famous cataphracts. We have an extensive description of them in a military treatise written by the 10th century Byzantine soldier Emperor Nicephorus Phocas. They were exceptionally heavily armoured cavalry, wearing chainmail or lamellar armour from head to foot, including a chainmail face guard with slits for the eyes, which gave them a particularly intimidating appearance. Wedge-shaped formations of 500 cavalrymen were used to charge and break the enemy at strategic points. These soldiers were game-changers in the 10th century, enabling the Byzantines to defeat Vikings coming from the north and the Arabs in the south. The Arabs were particularly intimidated by the cataphracts, quote, who advanced on horses which seemed to have no legs, end of quote, owing to the horses' armoured coats and their riders, quote, whose helmets and garments were of iron like their swords, end of quote. Most important of all was a strong military culture deeply embedded in Byzantine society, especially in Anatolia, which had been an area of intense fighting with the Arabs since the 7th century. 
while the army was divided into two forces, one in the west and one in the east, each with its own commander, it was the much larger and battle-hardened eastern army that dominated Byzantine politics. It had a military aristocracy concentrated in Cappadocia that was somewhat similar to the Prussian Junker class that effectively controlled the German army in the years leading to the First World War. In the 10th century, this aristocracy reached the peak of its power when two generals from the Eastern Army were made emperors, Nikephorus Phocas, 963-69, and John Zimikies, 969-76. The results on the battlefield were spectacular in this period. The Arabs were pushed back into Syria. The empire was expanded in aggressive offensives, with the reconquest of Crete, Cyprus, Tarsus and Antioch. This Cappadocian aristocracy devoted themselves completely to the art of war. Pride in martial pursuits dominated Byzantine society, just as it did in any militaristic society. Contemporary sources record that whenever Nikephorus Phocas was not campaigning, he used his spare time to drill his troops, quote, the Emperor Nikephorus Phocas trained his troops in daily exercises as thoroughly as possible in the arts of war. End of quote. But by the 1060s, the Byzantine army had shrunk to a fraction of what it had been in the 10th century, and the military aristocracy that had made it into the best fighting machine in Europe had been humbled. The causes of this can be traced to the actions of one man, the Emperor Basil II, 976 to 1025. Menacingly known as the Bulgar Slayer, when he acceded to the throne at the tender age of 18, Basil II was immediately confronted by major rebellions led by jealous generals in the Eastern Army, who regarded him as a weak and callow youth. This view was quickly disproved. Basil defeated the rebels using the Western army, which remained loyal to him, as well as mercenaries, in particular the newly created Varangian Guard, consisting of Rus Vikings from the Viking-controlled principality of Kiev. But Basil's next step was to prove disastrous for Byzantium. Not surprisingly, having only just survived the rebellions of the Eastern Army, he wanted to reduce its power. Although he didn't disband it completely, he imprisoned its Cappadocian leaders and cut back its numbers by commuting military service in return for tax payments. This proved popular with the local populations who were enjoying a period of unparalleled economic prosperity after the defeat of the Arabs. But the result for the army was that it became smaller and smaller. He also worked to undermine the power and wealth of the Cappadocian aristocracy by curbing its ability to take over peasants' land. There had been a growing feudalization of Anatolian society in the 10th century, which had greatly strengthened the military resources of the Cappadocian magnates. Basil put this into reverse by passing a law in 996 restricting them from acquiring peasants' land. He followed this up with another law called the Alalengion, 
stipulating that they would have to make up the shortfalls in tax on the part of peasants unable to pay. This stopped the poorer peasants coming under their sway. The Cappadocian aristocracy never threatened Basil again. Basil's next step was to make up for the shrinking eastern army with mercenaries. The Varangians became widely used as the army's main shock troops. This meant that the native Byzantine army started to lose its cutting edge in equipment and tactics. Particularly damaging was the demise of the Byzantine cavalry. In Nikephorus Phocas's army, the famous cataphracts had been the elite troops. But by the end of Basil II's reign, there is no record that they existed any more. Paradoxically, when Basil II died in 1025, the empire had never seemed so powerful. But this was an illusion created by the absence of dangerous new enemies. Basil had been lucky enough not to face any serious external military threats. His only challenge was a revived Bulgar state, which he crushed relatively easily. His successors were not so lucky. After his death, new enemies appeared from the Asian steppes, the Pechenegs from the north and the Turks in the east. Now, an effective army was needed. But Basil's successors were still more afraid of military rebellions than external enemies, and continued his policy of preferring mercenaries over native troops. As the 11th century rolled on, mercenaries came to dominate the army. In addition to the Varangians, Norman cavalry were first employed in the 1030s in the wars in southern Italy against the Arabs. The Byzantines hired young men in search of fortune and adventure from northern Europe. The regular Byzantine army got smaller and smaller as military service was increasingly commuted. A particularly damaging example of this occurred in 1053 when Constantine IX disbanded the provincial armies in Armenia to boost his tax revenues. This proved disastrous as Armenia became the front line facing the Seljuk Turkish advance. By the 1060s, the provincial armies that had formed the backbone of the glorious army of the 10th century had largely ceased to exist. Indeed, the distinction between centralised soldiers called Tagmata and provincial soldiers called Thermata had faded to the point that Byzantine sources in the later 11th century refer to all native Byzantine soldiers simply as Tagmatic, simply meaning regiments. Basil II's legacy was a poisoned chalice in every way. Not only did he undermine the Byzantine army, but he also died childless and seemed not to care about his succession. Almost nothing is known about his personal life and it remains a mystery why he never married. The result was decades of incompetent rule by a string of successors whose only claim to power was to be related to him. Basil II belonged to a ruling dynasty founded in the 9th century by Basil I. Consequently, on Basil II's death, the imperial crown passed first to his elderly brother Constantine, who lived for only three years, and then to Constantine's 
eldest daughter, Zoe, who ruled until 1055, with three successive husbands as emperor, all three hopelessly ineffective and none of them soldiers. In 1034, the Emir of Aleppo defeated the hitherto invincible Byzantine army for the first time in living memory. Incensed by this humiliation, the Anatolian aristocracy considered rebellion. As already mentioned, one of them, Romanus Diogenes's father, was arrested and committed suicide. In the end, there was no rebellion and the army continued to waste away. During the reign of Zoe's last husband, Constantine IX Monomachus, 1042-55, it became increasingly clear that the empire didn't have the military muscle to combat its new enemies. Although a Viking Rus attack on Constantinople was trounced by the Byzantine navy in 1043, this was only because of the use of Greek fire, the petrol-based incendiary flamethrower device that the Byzantines used. This caught the Vikings unaware and burnt their fleet. Otherwise, the empire's army struggled to contain the increasing attacks of steppe nomads who hurled themselves at the empire's frontiers along the Danube in the west and in Armenia in the east. The government also started to run out of money, while Basil II had left the state coffers overflowing with gold on his death in 1025. By the middle of the 11th century, the cost of paying for mercenaries to fight the empire's new enemies was bankrupting the government. Constantine IX took the easy way out and resorted to devaluation of the currency. He devalued the numisma, reducing its gold content to 81%. He also minted a lightweight gold coin, the Terturon, which he used to pay the growing number of mercenaries he re recruited to fight the Pechenegs and Seljuks, devaluing it to 73% of its original gold content. Finally, in 1056, a potential turning point was reached when the House of Macedon was extinguished with the death of the last of Basil's heirs, Zoe's youngest daughter, Theodora. Zoe herself had died in 1055. This created a make-or-break chance for a new political order. The powerful aristocratic families from Anatolia were quick to respond. The Comnenus, Ducas and Catacolon families joined together and marched on Constantinople, where they made one of their own emperor, Isaac Comnenus. Isaac was the first emperor with military experience since Basil II, and at first it looked as if a strong military government would be restored. He immediately started to reform the army and fiscal system, but Isaac struggled to keep the different aristocratic families happy. Some started to oppose him. And then his luck turned when this intelligent and well-intentioned emperor fell gravely ill. Physically weakened, he didn't have the strength to continue to battle both internally and externally. He retired to a monastery where he died soon after and handed power in 1059 to Constantine X Ducas. Constantine X's reign 
from 1059 to 67, accelerated Byzantium's decline. Too concerned about securing the support of the other aristocratic families to care about the empire's plight, he spent his days enjoying the luxuries of Constantinople and playing court politics. Perhaps surprisingly, the Anatolian aristocracy, underestimating the Seljuk threat, joined him. They abandoned the defence of the eastern provinces to parade in the streets of Constantinople, jostling for preeminence in a bloated imperial court and bureaucracy. Basil II's legacy had proved to be far worse than he could possibly have imagined. It might have not have been as bad had Byzantium's neighbours been as weak as they were during his reign. But the emperors of the 11th century weren't so lucky, for right on their doorstep had suddenly appeared a new superpower, the empire of the Seljuk Turks. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be amazing to leave a rating in iTunes or Spotify or wherever. Thank you so much. In the next episode, we'll look at the rise to power of the Seljuk Turks. <laughs>